Hey there, welcome to Build Your Tribe. My name is Shaleen Johnson. And my name is Brock Johnson. With more than 25 years of experience in a variety of businesses, I promise to share with you the ins, the outs, my failures, and successes. And my goal is to share with you these social media money-making strategies to turn your idea into passive income. Every week, my son, Brock, and I will share with you perspectives that will serve you regardless of the stage that you're at in your business. Whether you're a solo entrepreneur looking to grow your brand in social media or you've got dreams for a global brand, Build Your Tribe is here to serve you. All right, mom, this one's all you. Dude, girlfriend, I am so excited for this episode today. We've never done this topic before and we need to. What it is you're building someday is going to be a global brand. I just know it. And what you need to know today are the things that will impact the sale of your business. Maybe it's a business you haven't even created yet. So to think about these things in advance, to have a 2020 hindsight by looking through the lens of someone else who's been there before, oh my gosh, you cannot even believe how valuable this conversation is today. Today, I'm speaking with my friend, Angela Mater. We've known each other for, gosh, I think at least, at least 10 years. And I'm so proud of what she's been able to do how she's been able to sell her company. And today in this episode, she takes us on the journey. Like, how did she do this? How did she start? Like from scratch, like from picking out the name, she breaks it all down in incredible detail. So take out a pen and a piece of paper because there's a ton of great takeaways in this episode. But this had to be a two-parter because in the first part, we're gonna talk about what it took to build the company that way, some things that she would have done differently that would have made exiting a little easier what advice she gives to those people who are building a business. Even if you don't think you'll ever sell your company, like you just never know if someone's gonna knock on the door and offer you that price. You know, and there you are sitting on a beach in the Bahamas with a little umbrella in your drink. It could happen and you wanna be prepared for that. Now this is a two-parter and in part two, it gets hella juicy. That's where Angela and I both talk about our own experiences in selling businesses and what it's like after the sale. How do you make that transition and what you can expect? That episode will be out next week. Mark your calendar. Actually, you don't even have to mark your calendar. Just hit subscribe. Oh, and by the way, thank you so much for writing us reviews for Build Your Tribe. Every single episode, we give somebody a surprise thank you gift for writing a review on Apple iTunes. That's the best place to do it or whatever app you're listening to, but it really means a lot when you do it on Apple iTunes because that's where we're selecting winners, all right? So go to Apple iTunes to write your review and we'll send you a surprise gift if you're selected. In fact, one person each month wins a $2,000 scholarship to the Marketing Impact Academy. Either way, if you hear your review read here on the air, please be sure to check the show notes because that's where we'll give you details on what to do next. Here's this week's review. Today's five-star review titled, Shaleen is always helping us to move forward by A-A-M-L. Yes, I have kids. Things I took away from this podcast. One, it can be done with kids. Two, in the few minutes you have, Just do the thing that will move your business forward. Three, being rich is being able to live out your choices. Four, Shaleen reads my mind. Thank you for not giving up on me and all of us that need to hear things a few times in a few different ways. Thank you so much. 
All right, let's get to that interview with Angela Mater, the founder of Fitlosophy and creator of Fitbook. Angela, this is a topic we haven't explored before, but it's one we need to because we've got some really successful folks out there who I think it's important for them to think not the end in mind, but like maybe the next step or stage in mind. So this is exciting. It's the first time we've talked to an entrepreneur on the show about the process of building and selling and then moving on from a business. Well, thank you for having me. Yes, it's definitely not something I knew what I was getting myself into, but learned along the way. So <laughs> so let's take people along the journey. First of all, if you can share with us a little bit about the business that you created, what that brand yeah. and where you eventually were able to take that brand. Yeah, of course. So I started a brand called Fitlosophy in 2008. And most people to this day still call it Fitbook. Bad branding on my part, but that was the one product idea I had was this fitness and nutrition journal. And in fact, I don't know if you remember this or not, but you recommended Fitbook in your first book, Push. Absolutely. I still have it earmarked to this day. I was so proud of that. But I started that on one idea that I came up with in grad school and nobody thought it was going to work. I mean, it was pen and paper when they were launching apps. And then I'll never forget the day I launched it. And there was, you know, apps all around me. And a lot of those apps don't exist to this day. And fast forward, you know, I think the reason it worked is because we really are wanting to move more towards what worked and, and it was working for people. So ultimately, in 2011, I was able to land Target. That really was a game changer. Can I back you up a little bit? And just for those yeah. people who might not be familiar with the Fitbook, talk yeah. to us a little bit about, okay, was did you start with the company name Fitlosophy? Or did you start with one product? And tell us what Fitbook, for those who are not familiar with it, what it is and what it looks like, because your visual branding was so key, I think. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah. You know, the company name is always Fitlosophy, but, you know, there was a huge learning in that. And actually, we can touch on that later. Things you have to do to sell a business that, you know, I named the company Fitlosophy. I'd done all my research and I got a cease and desist in the mail that the name was being used by another company. In all rights, I had every right to use it, but I didn't have any money to fight, right? Attorneys mm. cost money. So it doesn't matter if you're right. If that's right, you know, these companies have money. When you say you got that cease and desist, cease and desist, wait, cease and desist. <laughs> when you got that letter, first of all, that sucks. I know what it like. Oh, it feels yeah. like to get that your stomach drops. And even if you're in the right, it's this weird feeling. You feel violated. You feel like you've been accused of being a criminal. And like you said, you did your homework, you did your research, and now you're getting this letter. Yeah. And how long had you been in business or been using that name when you got that that letter? You know, maybe about six months in. I mean, we started making a name for ourselves, and I think that's what made some noise. You know, we we launched the product, and you know, we had actually landed our first year in business landed Sports Chalet, which unfortunately doesn't exist anymore, but. You know, we received the letter and at that point, Shalene, I had already paid a designer to create a logo. I had my mm. website. I had everything done. And so I think the thing that I did right in that situation was I actually told the attorney, look, I want to talk to the CEO. And I had a conversation with him directly. And I just said, look, the person who was had filed the grievancy. Yeah. Good for you, ballsy chick. 
I just said, I, I don't have a lot of money. I'm still in grad school. I just launched this product. And and this time, Shalina, I'm still working another full-time job running my marketing agency because, you know, as you know, businesses don't make money <laughs> in years one and two a lot of times. So I had no money and I told him the situation and I said, look, is there any way we could come to an agreement so I could use the name as the company name so I don't have to file all my business stuff again and I can keep my logo. But how about we lead with Fitbook? It's my only product I have. So that's why we got getfitbook.com, which rolls off my tongue. Like, like literally I can say it in my sleep all day long. <laughs> I talk about it all getfitbook.com. But the guy was really cool. And here's the coolest part about it is they ended up selling our products at this store that had filed the cease and desist. Wow. So in, in so many ways, it was turning, you know, what was really a horrible situation into, you know, a positive landed some business and honestly had really great relationships with this company over the years. And but fast forward, and we can get to that later, if you want, I ended up having to write a check to buy the rights to that name before I could sell the brand, because I'm sure mm. as you can imagine who wants to buy a brand that you don't own the name to. I mean, we've been in business now for 25 years and we just had it happen to us again three years ago and we hired a high cost attorney. They did all of their due diligence. Preliminary checks came back great. I don't know what happened, but somewhere along the line, we were proceeding and then we got the uh, notification from our attorneys that we actually were not able to use that name. And yep. by that point, we had already bought like every single possible <laughs> domain name and, you know, we're working on logos and branding, all those things. So I think what we did is we went a little too fast yeah. and didn't look at universal trademarks, didn't look at how it was being used globally. Yep. And so what mistakes do you think you made there that someone could avoid? You know, my attorney said by all legal standpoints, I was in the right because they owned the service mark and I wanted the trademark, right? So they had a process called Philosophy and I had a product name company called Philosophy. But mm -hmm. here's the thing that the trademark office will look at, consumer confusion, right? So I tell people all the time, if you have a business and or you call it product and you think changing the name to a K instead of a C mm -hmm. in the word is going to get you past the trademark office, good luck. They right. they really look at, is this going to cause consumer confusion? And that's why I think you see a lot of the big brands out there making up names a lot that's of time. Right. I mean, that's why Fitlosophy worked was because it wasn't a name, you know, mm -hmm. it really was something different. But on that note, I was just telling the story the other day, I wanted to call it Fitnotes, not Fitbook. I wanted mm. Fitnotes, which is stupid if you think about it. I'm like, Fitnotes? Who would buy a Fitnotes? <laughs> but, you know, in some ways, not having access to the names you want causes you to be more creative. Yes. And so I can't imagine having like Fitnotes available at all Target stores nationwide. Like, it, it's just a weird name, but it hmm. forced me to get creative. And hence, we came up with Fitbook. Which is amazing even still that that was available. Yeah, actually it was. And the tagline that I secured that I think was a big reason why they loved the brand was Live Life Fit. I can't believe nobody owned it. I own Live Life Fit. I owned past tense over <laughs> multiple categories, including a pair. And that's the thing I did right. And this is one thing I talk entrepreneurs through. If you're wanting to grow your brand, don't think microscopically, think yeah. macro. So yeah. I secured Live Life Fit, not only for journals and books and publications, I secured the wellness industry. I also secured apparel so that we could launch the brand into that area. And so really think about 
are you wanting to stay in one little niche or do you actually want to think about where do you want to be five years from now and what would give the brand value? That's so hard for people to do. I know. But you're Trust. right. And we want to go so fast. You know, working with an entrepreneur the other day and she was sharing like some of her ideas. And, you know, I remember that when that feeling when you get so excited and you're like, and it'll do this and it'll do this and it'll do this. And when someone <laughs> wants to ask one of those questions that forces you to say like, oh, does this make sense? You don't even want to hear the question. Yeah. You know, and you feel like that person is raining on your parade. But those are the things that can save you hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars. Yes. But I, I would say that's partly why you're successful and entrepreneurs who are successful tend to be that way. And in my opinion, it's because if we stopped every time someone told us no, we would never get started to begin with. And, mm -hmm. you know, like I said, I started this company in my MBA program, which funny enough, I'm going to speak to that same program tomorrow wow. to their entrepreneurship class. And the funny thing is, and this is no dig on my MBA like mm -hmm. fellow colleagues, but you know, I didn't blame them, Shalene. I'm there pitching a presentation with diagrams of a book. I mean, they were, and, yeah. and some people have like radioactive, you know, <laughs> technology. And I'm like, and it has a pen, <laughs> you know, like, I mean, I get that it was like not what they thought, but, but all the research that I had done surveying people, this was something that wasn't being met. And mm -hmm. I also created it out of a personal need. And anytime you create something that you think has to be in the world, there are hundreds, thousands, if not millions of other people that feel the same way. And so I think you have to take that dose of like, yeah, maybe sometimes check yourself and always listen to the naysayers because they have good input that can help you. Mm -hmm. But the reason most entrepreneurs are successful is they plow forward regardless. Yeah. The investors who were not interested in Uber because they said, no one's <laughs> going to want to get in a stranger's <laughs> car, some random mom's Subaru, yep. right? So yeah. Let's talk about, if we can, what problem did Fitbook solve? This tool, why did you develop it? What did it do? After many, many years, about seven to eight years of battling pretty severe eating disorders that, you know, anorexia and bulimia, and I'm, I'm more open about it now, but I wasn't when I launched the business because mm. I didn't want to, I didn't want to tarnish my image. And the more I grew the brand, the more I learned, the more I share, the more people connect with me and why I created it. And, wow. but it was something that I was, I was very ashamed of, you know, mm. it was like, you have a company called Philosophy, and this is your history and your past. And so, but the real need came out of, um, I'll never forget, I went to an inpatient program and they had me start journaling, but I wasn't allowed to journal my calories. And between you and me, I still to this day have one of my first journals that had every calorie to the T and it was, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with counting calories, but it's how you do it. You know, you talk about yes. this a lot. And it was unhealthy for me, but, but really anybody that knows eating disorders, it's, it's not about calories. It's about right. so much more. Anyway, so I started journaling and it was through the process of this that I started realizing that I was gaining control over my, mm. which is interesting because eating disorders are a form of control, <laughs> but I was trying to control the control and really just created you. something that. Yeah, yeah, it's you got to control the chaos sometimes. And, right. and but what it started doing was shifting my mind more towards fitness, right? Mm. And more towards what am I doing for my body? What's healthy? When I was writing things down, I felt like at least I had some semblance of control. Because if you know anything about, you know, anorexia is highly controlled, like a lot of discipline, you know, bulimia is out of control. And so Fitbook helped me. Well, it wasn't named that obviously in the beginning, but I started mm. writing these things down. And 
literally it was, you know, a guy in the gym at 24 hour fitness of all places that wanted to know where I had him because he had a teenage daughter and he wanted to buy one. And I said, he said, do you make him? And I was like, yeah. And, and I didn't at that time, mind you, but I went <laughs> home and made him that weekend and, and sold them for $20 each. Here's what I love. Do you make these and do you sell them? In your mind, you just go, yes, I do. Yeah. Would you like to place an order? You know, right there, that is the mind of an entrepreneur. That is that person who is like, yes, I will find a way. You're almost seeing yeah. yourself in the future. And I believed in it. And I also, not only that, I just had a very big heart for anybody that struggled like I did. And I know that sounds so altruistic. I did this to make money, Shalene, let's not lie. Like I wanted the, the brand to do well and grow mm -hmm. and sell products. And But at the end of the day, I really did have a heart for people that started reaching out. And it, first it started once every month or so, and then every couple of weeks. And then it got to where my inbox and DMs and everything was, you know, people saying how Fitbook changed their life. And, and so, but, you know, saying all that, we did grow the brand beyond that one product, but that one product will always be kind of my baby, I call it. Also, the branding. And if we can talk about that for a moment, I think mm -hmm. that really stood out. Like, you're, when I think of like skinny girl, <laughs> I'm like, oh, I bet Bethany had a Fitbook because it just felt like, <laughs> you know, that, that bright white and you had a bright red thick coil, like everything about it made you want to, it just looked fun. It didn't feel like it was work. You wanted to pick it up. It was the like the size of it, all of those things. How much of the branding was your doing or did you hire someone to help you design the packaging, the look, the feel, the colors? Yeah, the branding and the product and the, you know, everything that we created really was my vision. Um, I wanted it to be very clean, almost Apple-ish, you know, mm -hmm. like I wanted to create a product that you could see on the shelves at Target. That said, I have a graphic designer that I worked with from day one. And actually we were already working on another company together. And so any money I could scrape together, I would pay her to help me design like the inside pages. I still have to this day that my sketches of what those pages would look like and what the outside would look like. And factories hated me because I'm like, no, the pages need rounded corners. And they're like, rounded corners, you know, that's going to add 50 cents. I'm like, I don't care. I want rounded corners. Yeah. I mean, I was so particular about the color of the red coil, the pin, there's a little pocket in the back. I mean, there's a slot card because, you know, if you had five bucks at the gym, you want to slip it in there. I mean, the level of detail, a lot of people would say like done is better than perfect. And frankly, I agree with that to some degree, but my level of like, detail, I think is partly why the brand succeeded because it was consistent and it was also noticeable. So I'm so glad to hear you liked it in mm. that, you know, it had a very clean look and feel, but it also was supposed to inspire people, you know, just by the, the mere look of it. Everyone has a journal now, you know, and every brand has a journal and, and they're just everywhere. They're at the dollar store. They're you know, high-end versions. I love yours. The well, new push you. journal, the beautiful, the B one. That is <laughs> amazing. I mean, I'm a, I'm a journal nerd, obviously. Yeah. Journal junkie for sure. And, and so of course I, I love what you're doing with that. And, and I think that is actually one key point, Shalene. So many people came up to me and said at, at this trade show, I launched the idea fitness convention. You were probably there yep. and you were probably a keynote speaker that year. <laughs> I don't know, but it was 2008. And mm -hmm. you know, I would have personal trainers come up to me and they're like, I have an idea for a journal and kind of looking down on me. Like I didn't create anything that great. Some people were very cool, but some people were kind of like, it's a journal. I have totally. an idea for that. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. 
where is yours? So that's not to be snarky by any means, but it, but it does come back to the fact that like we were not the first fitness journal and we won't be the last fitness journal. I didn't reinvent anything, but I did. I will tell you the one thing that we did with philosophy was while every brand out there had a journal, like it was an afterthought, like, oh, we have this brand, so we'll create a journal. Yeah. Philosophy really was created to be a journal company. And so we really wanted to own that space of like, this is what we do. We do paper. So that's kind of what we set out to do. Well, to this day, I still think your design is iconic. Like, it's hard to pick up a journal and just go, oh, this is a, except maybe a Franklin Covey, right? And even that, there's so many knockoffs. Like, I can't think that there's a journal that has the same impact in terms of branding. So just hats off to you there. So walk us forward. When do you have your first profitable year and how many SKUs do you have at that point? Year one, we were actually profitable. We made, I can tell you because it was not much. I think we made $35,000 in profit that year, which is a lot in profit for year one. Yes. But let's dive into that. So many numbers, like these lists of fastest growing companies. I'm like, well, yeah, you're fast growing if you're not making any money. So we had very few expenses because I wasn't paying myself out of the business yet. Mm -hmm. And we still, we only had one product, Shaleen, for the first three years. (laughs) Was that difficult for you to just say, focus, focus, focus? And were you working with a business coach who helped you maintain? Because I think the Achilles heel for most everyone listening is we have too many ideas, not enough hours in the day which yes. causes us to lack focus. And then when we're, we splinter our attention and we don't choose one, we lose. Yes, right? so you, agree. How were you able to, let me ask you that question first, because that person listening right now, this is it, man. They are having a difficult time picking one thing and giving it 100% of their time. How did you maintain that singular focus? Well, you know, first of all, whenever your resources are limited, you know, you can do all things poorly <laughs> or you can do one thing really, really well. But to your question, I did have a business partner at this point in the business. There was, you know, not that this necessarily matters, but personally, I had gone through a very big loss. I had gotten a divorce the same year I started my company and lost everything. Mm. And so I had no money. And this friend who is a friend to this day was my original seed angel investor and not a lot of money, but you know, that was the only way I could start it. And his focus was what kept me focused, to be honest with you. Mm. So if you are out there listening and you don't have a coach or somebody or a mentor that can keep you focused, you will like entrepreneurs were were born to like bright, shiny objects all over the place. Mm -hmm. And his lecture to me all the time was, he's like, you know, look at in and out they do one thing and they do it really well. Mm. You know, they have a very singular focus. And so why don't we make sure that we're really, really successful in this space before we branch out? But I will say when we started branching out, it was to things that made sense, right? So our next product was Fitbook Junior for kids because mm-hmm. we started getting requests from schools because they wanted to use Fitbook. And I'm like, I am not giving a journal that talks about you know, exercise and calories to a a child. So Mm -hmm. we created that and started landing deals in that space. So whenever you do branch out, think about your target audience and who that is and how can you create things that will kind of fit in and complement what you already have versus a lot of people will create things that cannibalize their business they already have. Mm. So they're not creating incremental revenue. They're just replacing it. So Mm. 
the focus was so hard, Shalene. I always want, I, and I did not do it right all the time. I launched sure. products that are silly. I, I look back and I'm like, why, why did you create a body scale made out of glass that weighs a ton to ship? And I mean, I didn't make every choice right, but I will tell you the expensive mistakes I learned <laughs> the fastest. So if that's your flagship product, the Fitbook, would mm-hmm. Fitbook Junior be your next most successful or what, what was your next most successful SKU? That's interesting because that does lead us into what actually led to the sale of the business. In about 2015, I wanted to create a gratitude journal that wasn't so fitnessy and I could not get it in the journal aisle. So we're at Target. Let me back up. We're at Target. And I knew the way I always grew the business was if I just launched a product and try to sell just online direct to consumer, you know, you can only market Fitbook to people so long. And then they're like, okay, we get it. You have Fitbook, right? Right. (laughs) So I knew that launching new products were a lot of times tied to retail placement, right? Mm -hmm. So if I didn't have a retailer say, yes, I want it, then I wouldn't go to production with it. But if Mm. I had Target say, yes, then I could plan that deal. So I created this concept for the Fitspiration Journal, which now, to be honest with you, is neck and neck, probably the last I knew, with the sales of Fitbook. And it took off quickly because if you think about it, Fitbook is very fitness and nutrition kind of hardcore gym health nut. And the Fitspiration Journal is a little bit more giftable. It's health and wellness inspired gratitude journal. So all that said, I created it and Target would not take me in the journal aisle because they, you know, they said, you're already over in the fitness aisle with Fitbook and we only buy from like three major companies in the journal aisle. Mm. So I found out what companies those were. I approached two of them and I said, hey, do you want to sell this into the aisle? So that was my first licensing deal. I see. So you licensed it to one of the big companies. In other words, are these companies that are, if we're looking at, say, the publishing industry, these might be the equivalent of like a publisher, like they have certain brands under their publishing house. Yeah, like our friend Whitney English. I mean, she sold her brand as well, but she, you know, she was had a deal with Blue Sky and we ended up going for various reasons with the other options, C.R. Gibson. And and so what I did at that point was we had at that point landed that deal from a licensing perspective and quickly that item that they were selling into the Target journal aisle was the number one top selling journal in the aisle for that. Wow. So it quickly showed me that there was a demand. So what did I do with that? I took our sales numbers and I went to Walgreens and CVS and I went to the fitness aisle at Target and said, look at these numbers. It's selling. So I tried to leverage that. And do you make a lot of money on licensing? No. Is it the best solution for everyone? No. But I was very strategic in that I wasn't doing it for the money. Mm -hmm. I was doing it for the exposure and the connections and the sales numbers. And it did way better than I expected, to be honest. All right. We're going to take a quick break for those of you who are interested in learning more about coaching with myself and my husband, Brett. I want to share with you an opportunity to work with myself and my husband, Brett. As you know, if you are a regular listener of The Shaleen Show or you follow me on social media, like family is central to everything that I do. It's how I have lived my life. It's how I've built my career, how we've kept our marriage together. That's been our central focus. It's one of the reasons why I created a journal that would help me to align my life in such a way that I could accomplish all the things that I wanted to do, things that made me feel purpose-driven, made us feel purpose-driven, allowed us to build our business to do so in such a way 
that we were able to honor our family. And we've heard from so many of you that you struggle in that area. And that's why we are offering a coaching program that isn't for everybody. Brett and I have decided we want to work with those of you who are go-getters. This doesn't necessarily mean you're a business owner. It means that you have things you want to accomplish. You have goals that you want to master. You want to do something more, but at the same time, you struggle with how to balance that with family. So we're doing something called Push Goal Coaching. You can learn more about it by going to pushgoalcoaching, that's hard to say, dot com. I can't promise you, based on the time or when you're listening to this, that it will be available. We're going to do 30-day coaching sessions. It is a new adventure for us. We've been doing this privately for years, but it's something we realize there's a need for others, something we wanted to make very affordable because this is, we believe, our purpose. We believe we've really figured out a way to do it, and we want to help others by sharing our systems, by sharing how we were able and continue to this day honor our family and still master our goals, but do so with family in mind. So if that's you, if you are a family-oriented person and you're also interested in goal setting and goal mastery, if you're planning on starting a family and you want to know how to set yourself up for success now, this is for you. We've priced it affordably under $200 for 30 days of virtual coaching with myself and my husband. To learn more, please go to pushgoalcoaching.com. All right, let's get back to our show, shall we? And at this point, how many employees do you have? If we're back in, is it this 2015? At that point, that, that's about 2015. I had four people working for me. Yeah, that's crazy. And can you share with us your sales in 2015? 2015, our sales would have hit around 2 million. So exciting. With four yeah. employees. And so I would assume- That was not smart though on my part, Shaleen. I mean, you really do need to scale up your team. I'm so glad you said that. Yeah, I'll be the first person to say I didn't know how. Mm. I, you know, I am a control freak by nature. Mm -hmm. Yes, I'm admitting it. I am type A. I mean, Shaleen, I can't tell, like, I still to this day, I wrote every word in every product. I literally am involved in every single, like, that, because that's what I love. And Mm. I'm like, okay, if I grow a business hiring copywriters and a team of five designers, I'm not doing what I like anymore. I loved the social media. Why do I want to take that away? And over time, though, I did bring on really smart people that could help grow the brand, but I wasn't good at that. And I Mm. think that is what the deciding factor in selling the business was. And I know we'll get there, but you know, some people are managers and some people are entrepreneurs and some people are CEOs. I am an entrepreneur. And there is a distinction between all of those. And, you know, the most successful brands are those that realize those shortcomings and know where they need to bring on top-notch people. But it is a leap of faith and it's a big investment. And it means taking a look at what do you want your life to look like, right? So what year was it that you decided, okay, hmm, Mm. I think I I need to sell. And and what was the catalyst for that? That was actually not a decision I made. Um, I didn't want to sell. I was not looking to sell because our sales were doing so well at the point where we had just landed CVS, which we would go into CVS in 2018. So, but in 2017, I knew I had landed CVS um, chain wide, which, you know, just for reference for people like 
Target's 1,800 stores, and I know Target has this great reputation, which it is. I love Target because it's a very different consumer. But, you know, Walgreens, you know, had 3,500, 4,000 stores. CVS had 9,000. Wow. We went into 8,500 stores. So it really was taking our numbers from, you know, doing well to, wow, we're going to crush it. And so- You know, I think the deciding factor was when this company that had licensed this journal from us, I wasn't quite sure I wanted to renew the licensing contract because I was considering taking the business direct at this point. And because, you know, from a licensing perspective, our contract was, you know, expiring. And that's when they asked me, are you interested in selling the business? Mm. And I was like, huh? What? (laughs) (laughs) I just slept footbooks around. I don't like, I mean, I still very much was involved in the day to day. And at this point, Jillian had been my life for, you know, going on what, nine years? When you say you're doing everything, are you overseeing the fulfillment, the production, the quality control? Are you sourcing? Are you doing all of these things, Angela? At this point, I had hired an operations person who helped oversee operations, importing the products, placement at our retailers. I had still had the same graphic designer I've worked with for, gosh, we've worked together like 15 years. I did have a marketing person who actually started taking on a lot of that responsibility, and she really grew that. I had someone helping writing the blog. And so I did have a lot of that. But when it came to sales, Shaleen, The one thing I will tell you, and I believe so strong, this is actually what I'm speaking with the class tomorrow about is sales. Because Mm -hmm. so many people want to outsource sales first. And the the truth is no one will sell your brand like you do. So I tried so hard to hire a sales force and it never worked. Part of it is because when I went into a retailer to meet with a buyer, which to this day is my favorite thing to do, Mm. I could literally see this like drum boring bored person staring at me like, fine, what do you got? And by the end, their eyes are bright there yeah. because I think my energy was just infectious. And it's not, here's the thing I want to make a really big point. It is not because I'm better. It's not because I'm the best salesperson. It is because that's how much I believed in what I was selling. I didn't have to fake it. So if you are out there trying to create something, make sure what you're dedicating your life and your heart and soul to is something that really, really is something you can love on days that it's easy and love on days that it's hard because it's going to be hard. Oh, that's such great advice. If you watch QVC or the Home Shopping Network, it is why they don't bring on a representative of the company. I mean, in some cases they have to, but 98% of the time they want to bring on the original creator, developer, inventor, mom and pop who, because that's the person who's like, this solved the problem. And I want to scream <laughs> yes. it from the, everybody needs this. They know there's nothing more believable or convincing hearing it from you. Well, if you want to talk about failures, I was on QVC. <laughs> okay. Okay. I didn't know this. Yeah. Yeah. I was on QVC. What and year was this? this? Take us there. Oh, gosh. It was, it was right after. Oh, I remember because it was right after my mother passed away and I had to like pull it together somehow to be on not just national television, like around the world. So yeah. like millions of people. And I'm like, Oh my gosh. But I, I was on in 2014. Okay. And uh, no, 2013, 2013. And when I say failed the segment, I still have the segment on my website to the day because I loved it. It was so much fun. I literally had to pay for that experience because we did not make money on the segment, but here's why. I didn't listen to my gut on what they wanted the configuration to be. And they mm. wanted to buy have a price point on a package of products and, and it didn't work. And again, goal, weight, body scale, not my brightest idea. 
Were you selling the Fitbook or the scale? It was the Fitbook, a food scale, and a goal weight body scale for $79, which mm. was, yeah, a great deal. It's too high of a price point. We needed to go in mm. with the Fitbook and food scale for 25 bucks. You know, mm. we needed to really get our price point. And it wasn't necessarily all up to me because buyers make their choices on what they want on air and they were fascinated with the goal weight body scale. But guess what? Most people don't want a scale and I don't blame them. Mm. So anyway, not my biggest success, but I will tell you it was great exposure for the brand. Absolutely. All right. So they approach you about selling the company. And now what's next? Are you like, wait a second, I never thought about this. What was your very next step? Well, you know, I, at this point, and, and I do have to say that I did have um, business advisors in place at this point in the business. Cause when you're signing deals with, you know, big retailers, there's a lot of financials around. You're really trying to manage cash flow. So obviously I ran this by my advisors. Your business advisors are these people that you brought onto the board. Are these paid positions? Are they paid coaches? Outsourced, yeah, advisors. Mm-hmm. And they weren't, so they weren't you know, on the board or anything like that. I just paid them a monthly fee Mm -hmm, to mm -hmm. advise me in my business and super valuable because one of the strengths I have, and I I hate, I don't want to say I'm not good with numbers. I'm good with numbers, but it's not the best use of my time. So I can, I can look at a P and O all day long. I can tell you the performance of the business and where we need to change things, but it's not the best use of my time. But the reason I'm, I'm saying that with a caveat is I think a lot of I'll be honest here. I think a lot of women downplay their ability to be able to look at financials and make smart choices. And I mean, you have to, if you're an owner, business owner, because no one's going to watch your bottom line like you, no one cares about it like you. So, you know, I, I did pull them in to help me though, on the things that weren't my strength. This is really, (laughs) really, really important. In a coaching session I did last week, I was talking to another entrepreneur about this, you know, incredible idea that she's vetted the whole thing and we went over it piece by piece, like what it would look like, what it would scale to. And then when we got to the part where I said, all right, let's talk about costs associated. What is your CPA? What is it going to cost you to acquire each customer? What is it going to cost you to produce this? All the concepts were there. And she said, well, I haven't done any of that yet because I don't think I need to. <laughs> we as entrepreneurs, we get, and we should be very, very excited about our idea but if you don't know the numbers, you are a dreamer. And you, you to be yeah. an entrepreneur, you have to get ugly with the numbers and you've probably underestimated what it's going to cost you. You need to add yes. probably 15 to 20%. So let's talk about those numbers for a second. Yeah. Why do you think it is? It's not even that we can't do it. It's we just, we want to move forward and go like, does this idea work without ever thinking about the numbers? Can you share with us like one example where you're like, I blew it because I, I never really considered how expensive fill in the blank? Yeah, you know, fortunately, I can say I, I never did blow it uh, financially because, you know, here's the, the mistake I see most people, and specifically if you're out there and you have a product, listen closely. This is not just, oh, it costs this much to make the product. Things that you don't think about is warehousing, storage, fulfillment. How are you going to get those to your customers? But then you have to think about cash flow. Mm -hmm. So for example, when I landed the deal with... um, So uh, leading up to this point, the business was all self-funded, meaning we had no debt as a business. The business was kind of running itself. But when we landed CVS, it was a real turning point because imagine having a order for 8,500 stores. (laughs) That is going to cost upwards of, you know, I mean, it's 
less than a million, but definitely around, you know, that that range of money that I'm going to have to pay out. They've got 8,500 stores. How many, just to give us a a ballpark, it's your very first order. So they're going to be conservative. How many sets? They're going to do 8,500 stores at three units per store. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you do the math and then you have your per unit, but then you have to import that product. And and my point being, this was the biggest order we'd ever had. And I had money. But the thing is, what people don't realize about cash flow is, yeah, I had the money in the bank to be able to pay that bill. But what you don't think about is, for I'll be very specific with examples because mm-hmm. this is helpful, mm-hmm. is, okay, you get the placement for the order in October, okay? okay? You go to production in no later than November because you have to go to production so it ships by January because it doesn't arrive until end of February because of Chinese New Year. That's so many right. people forget that. That's right. And then it ships in March and it hits stores in May. Okay, when it hits stores in May, I get paid... 60 days after it ships. So I went to production in November. I have actually paid money out of my pocket in November. And then I don't get paid on that till April or May. So my yeah. point point being is if you can't float that. So that was the first time I actually had to get a line of credit. I had to put my name personally, guarantee a line of credit to grow the business. And that was a huge risk. Now, granted, it, it's a PO from a large retailer like CVS. It, it wasn't a huge risk, but still it's putting my name on the line that if for whatever reason I can't pay you back, I owe you a lot of money. I would assume you had something very similar that must have happened when you went to QVC because, you know, having done some things with QVC, I too know they're very particular. They want their own, usually their own packaging. They want the product in their facility before they'll even schedule your on-air time. Like, oh, there's so many things you have to jump, so many pieces that are have to fall into place before you can get onto QVC. And then they're not asking you to go on the air unless you can sell X, you know, they're estimating your sales per minute. So I assume you had to go into massive production and perhaps even incur some debt for that appearance. Am I wrong? No. Yeah. So a couple of things there is we did the the horrible thing about that deal was we had to configure again, people think you just sell a product. No, no, no. They wanted it boxed in these little sets, right? Mm -hmm. And configured there and they had to arrive on pallets a certain way and blah, blah, blah. So, you know, we had a deal here. Here's the thing with QVC. If they didn't sell, you had to buy it back. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Yeah. So let's just say we had to buy some stuff back. Now, (laughs) did I turn that around and have some like I think I did some sales and I'm like, oh, my gosh, like I have to get rid of product. We also, you know, a lot of times what I do when I'd mess up like that, we were a big partner with the American Heart Association. So I would donate a lot so I could take the business right off and actually do something good with the product. Mm. So I had different ways. And this is before the days of like FabFitFun and stuff like that. But that's also a great way to get rid of a large amount of product. But, you know, QVC did okay. I'm not going to say it crashed, but we did have to buy some product back. Mm -hmm. But no, the only time that I had to actually incur quote unquote debt to, you know, get a line of credit was whenever we landed CVS. So do you decide to do that yourself? Or is that the decision that you're facing that was the catalyst? I mean, I had no choice. You know, I had to keep paying my employees and keep paying for production of other products in that six months that I wouldn't be paid by, you know, you run cash flow analysis. And it's like, I can't run it that thin because what we can't stop marketing, we can't stop the things that are making us money just until I pay that bill. And so no, it was a pretty simple decision for me. And I knew at some point I needed to secure a line of credit. But, you know, to really take that brand to the next level, I had to do that. And I'm grateful that I did because that placement really was kind of what I think sealed the deal on selling the business. So now walk us through that. At that point, 
you know, like I said, they had approached me and, you know, I, I know you've been through the same process, so, you know, it's a lot of time involved, mm, but, mm, you know, mm, from mm. The, <laughs> you know, you go through a lot of, at first they, they just requested some documents, which is very normal. You know, they want to see financials, they need legal agreements, NDAs, all that stuff. Were you specific to work with an attorney who had experience in the sale of businesses? Absolutely. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. So like, and you know what? It costs a fortune, but don't use your brother-in-law's no. cousin who passed the bar after his seventh time and no. is still living in his mom's basement and no. he's technically an attorney. Like don't use, no. or that person's like, oh, I know someone. No, use someone who this is all they do. This is all they do. And that is... That is so important in selling a business because there's so much documentation, so much <sighs> legal stuff. And there are things that you have to negotiate that you don't think about and things that they catch that you would never think about. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we go through that process, the due diligence. And, you know, at this point, mind you, this is the hardest thing I've ever done. I can't tell my team about it. Oh, my gosh. Right? Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. We can just have <laughs> such a bonding moment. <laughs> I felt like I was living a double life. I felt like... Angela. Yeah. yeah. This is too good. This needs to be a two-parter. So you know what we're going to do, ladies and gentlemen? This is where it gets really freaking juicy. So you're going to need to tune in to part two with Angela. And Angela, we're going to save the best stuff for that episode. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my goal to be brief, to be bright, to make it super fun and super juicy. And that's what we did today. We will see you next Thursday with part two with Angela. I do have to say, if you are not familiar with our Courageous Confidence Club, it has helped so many people to overcome general anxiety. I'm not suggesting by any means that it is a cure for panic attacks, but so much of our anxiety has to do with how we think about the world and how it views us. And learning how to build your own confidence is one of the best ways to reduce your own anxiety and stress. And building your confidence is very much like building any type of strength. You need to know what exercises to perform. You need to practice these things. You need a plan. You can't just say, I want to be a more confident person. You really do need to know what steps to take in order to build confidence. And that's why I created the Courageous Confidence Club. It's got a really cool community program. And it's a lot like this. If you like listening to podcasts, you'll love the Courageous Confidence Club because they are audio lessons everyone can benefit from them, whether it's, you know, a teen in high school or you're 72 years old and trying to build your confidence. Trust me, at any age, you can improve your confidence. And here's why that's important, because when you're a parent, you are going to raise more confident children. When you are a more confident individual, you are more attractive to your peers, your significant other. You're able to stand up for yourself and you don't allow fear and anxiety to rule you. And it will help you to overcome self-doubt and fear, fear of success or fear of failure, all of those things. To learn more, go to CourageousConfidenceClub.com. Again, that's CourageousConfidenceClub.com.